Good morning, Booker Tov. Welcome back to Pasha Perspectives for today. As always, we begin with our attitude of gratitude, with our thanks to those who sponsored the Shear. The series sponsors for the year, Becky and Avi Katz and family, in memory of David Grossman. Our learning is Lilo Nishmas David Menachem Manish. This morning, Shear is also sponsored by Deborah and Daniel Scheinbein in the 65th Yuritzite, Bo Bayom of her father, Lawrence Hertzberg, Aryeh Leib Ben Shalom, Neshama Sherev and Aliyah, by Moshe Cohen in honor of his dear friend, Mikey Pearl, my son-in-law, on his birthday this week. It's a good reminder. It's his birthday this week. May he live long and happy and healthy years. I love Moshe Cohen. He's the best, and I love Mikey Pearl, so thank you. And by Hensha Gansberg, in memory of her father, Irving Stone, we benefit by using the Chumash he dedicated each and every week. We always announce the page in the Stone Chumash in his tribute. Thank you to Henshaw for sponsoring in his memory. Uh, also a reminder, there is no shear next week. I'll be traveling, so there's no Parsha shear next week. The good news is there are many previous years shearim available online. You can get together here in this room and listen together, watch together, talk together, learn together. But we will, I will not be here together, so no shear next week. And also one other uh, housekeeping announcement before we dive right in, in addition to a reminder to turn your phones off, is the latest uh, episode of Out of the Shadows. We started a new mental health a podcast in order to take away the stigma, the shame, the shanda of mental health issues. Last night we released episode number three on the topic of trauma. It's well worth listening, whether you yourself have experienced trauma or you know somebody who has. Uh, the next episode will be about OCD, but you can listen, you can find it now online on YouTube or any podcast player out of the shadows. Stone Chumash, page 340, the Arts Scroll Stone Chumash. In memory of Irving Stone. Parakyud Pasagal, Vayam Rashem Moshe Boal Paroki, Aniyach Bariti Asli Bob Esleva Vadav, Laman Shisi Oso Sai Ela Bikir Bo. Hashem says to Moshe, Nu, come, we're heading out, we're going to Paro. It's time, I've hardened his heart again and the heart of his servants, so that I can continue to show these signs. In other words, five plagues have now been visited upon the Egyptian people, and understandably they would cave, they would fold. Enough is enough. Any rational person would not continue to self-sabotage. They would let the people go. They would meet this, this request. Paro does not. Why? Because Hashem hardens Paro's heart. And there are many, many questions. We're not going to dive into them. We've spoken about them before. What are the ethics of hardening someone's heart? What happened to free will? Where is the free will if you harden someone's heart? Why is that fair to Paro? Paro then suffers the consequences. He's punished because his heart is hardened. But really, if his free will was suspended, is it really his fault? And the many approaches there are to this question. Also, why does it say Bo? What should it say? Lech, go to Paro. What does Hashem mean come? Moshe, go to Paro. We say this every year because Hashem is telling us, not only Moshe, each and every one of us, whatever our mission, whatever our shlichus, wherever we go, Hashem doesn't say, I'm going to sit back under the palm tree sipping a pina colada and you go, you take the risk, you make yourself vulnerable, you go fulfill the mission. He doesn't say, lech, go. The Rebbe Shalom puts his arm around us and he says, bo, no, come, come, let's go pay a hospital visit. Come, let's go make a meal for someone. Come, let's be on time for shul. Come, let's go to the parasha class. Come, whatever our mission, whatever our mandate, wherever we're meant to be, Hashem doesn't say go. He says, come. Hashem is right by our side. He is right there with us. He's more than assisting. He's the senior partner in our, in our success. And now we have an interruption. Go tell your children why I'm doing this, such pomp and circumstance. Again, we've reviewed all of this. So let's fast forward. Past the eighth plague, seven plagues have been done already. Arba, why before this plague? Um, I'll, I've gotten in the habit of posing questions to you. I don't give an answer so that you have some homework on your own. But why before specifically this eighth plague of Arba? Why is it now that Moshe offers this curriculum and says, we're going to gather, we're going to celebrate what we're experiencing right now forever. We're going to transmit it to the next generation. Why not after the first plague, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh? Why not when it's all done after the 10th? Why the interruption here specifically before the 8th plague? Moshe says, just know we're going to one day celebrate this together. What is it about the 8th plague? Why here and why now? Again, I leave you for that to consider on your own. But we're going to fast forward. The ninth plague of Choshech. We've also discussed previously the plagues supposedly build in intensity. Dam as horrific as it would be for us, for all of our water sources to turn to blood, that was considered the most mild. Makas Bacharos, 
The death of the firstborn, of course, was the most severe. Everything in between is building in intensity, is building in intensity. So, choshech, darkness, never experienced a blackout? Never gone in the dark? Why is choshech, why is darkness considered this plague? It's already the ninth plague, the penultimate plague. It's considered the second to worst, second to most severe. Why? What's so severe? You can't survive in a blackout. What really went on? Otzer plos has pages and pages and pages, different descriptions of the thickness of this darkness. Darkness wasn't just the absence of light. This darkness was a thick darkness. Some say it wasn't a darkness in the atmosphere. It was cataracts, immaculate degeneration. Kodesh Baruch created an ophthalmological, was that right? ophthalmological illness disease. They were all struck with simultaneously and there weren't enough ophthalmologists, retina specialists to heal everybody at once. So nobody could see. It was darkness. There are other opinions that are all bag. He quotes all these, the Torah Tamima. Maybe it wasn't actually darkness. It was a severe light. Sometimes a bright light can blind you. So maybe the darkness was actually a bright light, not a darkness at all. But darkness can be debilitating and paralyzing. It's a beautiful Chidush Arim. This is all what I'm not telling you. It's a beautiful Chidush Arim who says, what was the mark of Choshech? Look at the Pasuk. What happens? For three days, You know what the darkness was? When you have an egocentric, narcissistic, self-centered society, and nobody can see anyone else, there's no greater darkness than that. The darkness was not in the atmosphere and the darkness was not in their eyes. The darkness was socially, interpersonally. People only cared about themselves. In a world of society where where people don't see anyone else, they don't extend themselves, they don't care, then there is no greater sense of a darkness in the world than that. So you have, you have darkness, this penultimate plague, what was so terrible about it? Again, I refer you to the Otzer Plos HaTorah, long, long essays about what was so terrible about this plague of, of darkness. What do we know happened during darkness? Rashi here tells us, why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu bring darkness? Who else experienced their demise? Who else suffered a plague were the Jews who were not destined to leave? There were Jews who were cowards. They weren't courageous. There were Jews who preferred the slave mentality, this fatalistic life, who felt in the Meitzar of Mitzrayim. We spoke about this past Shabbos. They were living in these boundaries. They couldn't break free. They couldn't imagine something different. This self-imposed prison, in addition to the oppression and persecution of the Egyptians, the Meitzar of Mitzrayim. And they preferred to stay than to ever leave. They couldn't bring themselves to leave. So they died under the cloak of darkness. Why? Rashi tells us why. Why did they die under the cloak of darkness? Because Hashem did not want the Egyptians to see what? To see their downfall, to see their death. Where is this? Which Rashi? I can't see. Not because of darkness, because I'm getting old. Uh, we're getting any other numbers. Scream out a number. This is like bingo over here. Lottery over here. Rashi quotes from Chazal that they died. We know this later. And the two translations of the word chamushim, either it means armed or the alternative interpretation, not armed, but one-fifth, four-fifths, 80% perished where? In Egypt. So the Megid Yosef, or Yosef Suratsky, and this is question number three I'm not going to answer today. He wonders, had darkness help? You think when the darkness cleared and the light came back on, you think the Egyptians didn't notice that 80% of the Jews were no longer there? How obtuse were they? What did it help? Why did Hashem do it under the cloak of darkness? As soon as the light came back on, they would notice, and he does the calculations, how many millions of Jews there would be, because we know how they proliferated. We know the Jews, the population explosion that took place. So 80%, you're talking about four, five, six million people died during the plague of darkness. Jews! Four, five, six million Jewish graves and Jewish cemeteries were filled. Four, five, six million fewer Jewish slaves. The Egyptians didn't notice, hey, something's going on here. So what did it help to do it under the cloak of darkness? Why did Hashem do it that way? Check out the Megid Yosef. He has an answer to that question. But we're going to get started today, not only with questions, providing some answers. Perikid Aleph, Pasuk Dalet. Vayomer Hashem Moshe. Od Nege Paro. Hashem tells Moshe, I got one more. 
I got one more that I'm going to smack him with. Paro and Mitzrayim. Then after that, it's time to go. And after that, we'll get out of here. Speak to the people. Please speak in the ears of the people and have them borrow one from the other. We've also spoken about this before. I'll throw one more question in. We've answered it previously. You got to see the gra on this pasuk. Daber na na is lashon, bakasha na means please. Please speak. Why would you have to say please? Vayishalu ishme Israel. What does reeu mean? Ein reeu el Yisrael. Reeu b'mitzvos. Reeu means speak to your friend. Means a fellow Jew. So it sounds like it's saying go borrow from from the Egyptians. Borrow, because you're not really returning. When someone says, can I borrow a tissue? You hope they don't return it. <laughs> That's the kind of borrow the Jews were doing here. Can we borrow some on our way out? We have no commodities, no resources. We have nothing to work with. Can we borrow some on the way out? They had no intent to return. Isn't that called? Another name for that is stealing. Where are the ethics of their taking it? The answer, of course, is they had hundreds of years of, of compensation, of back pay, of uh, restitution. The Egyptians owed the Jews. So they weren't in fact stealing, they were taking what they were due, what was theirs. But why would you call the Egyptians Re'ehu? They're not your friend. They're not your peer. They're not your comrade. And why would you say, no, please? So the Gra is a different interpretation here that this was an instruction to Jews. The little that you have, lend to one another. You need to do chesed with one another. It's only in the merit of not living in choshech. It's only in the merit of a willingness to see one another, to care about, to extend to one another, to lend to one another. It's only in a chesed community, a chesed society, we'll come back to that, that you can have redemption, that you can have freedom. So before you can go free and break free, you need to establish your own freedom by demonstrating the freedom of caring and loving and creating community where you lend to one another. The first chesed committee, the first chesed society. Says the Gon, the Chavetz Chaim, based on this Gon, says the Chavetz Chaim ala Torah, that's why we say in Az Yashir, the normal taich, we usually translate it as Nachisa b'chastach, Hashem, you're chesed. You're loving chesed, you're loving kindness. You brought us out, you took us out. But the Chavetz Chaim, based on this going, reinterprets, no, Nachisa b'chastach means Hashem says to us in the merit of your chesed that you demonstrated with one another, that you were not self-centered. You didn't retreat into your own world caring only about your survival. You were willing to care for one another. It's in that merit that you were redeemed. It's because of that that you were redeemed. Now, Pasuk Dal, so now Moshe says to Paro, at about midnight. And here we start with a beautiful insight of, very interesting, a beautiful insight of Rav Chaim Dov Altuski, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Torah Or, based on Rashi. Rashi notes, the word says, which means, at around midnight, right? A Jewish notion of time. Around. Approximately. Around. This is not a Yekesha Rashi over here. Moshe Amar Kachatzos. Shezeh Kachatzi. Alayla demashma samachlo. Olafanavo lacharav. A minute before, a minute after. Approximately. About. Around. Tomorrow night we have the Baba Sali Hilula of the Svardim. I don't even know what time it starts, but I would not come at that time. <laughs> You might be in a room all by yourself. The Baba Sali will not, his neshama will not even be there yet. So, kachatzos, there are those who live with a mentality approximately around. We were invited to a Sephardi wedding years ago, and we came intentionally a little bit late based on what it said on the invitation. And we got there, mamish, nobody there. So we called the family, I called one of the siblings of the chassan. He said, yeah, we're at home getting ready. We haven't even left yet. It's mamish another time. Anyway, kachatzos. Kachatzos, at about, at approximately, at around. Now that's true for a more Hamish attitude to the Jewish notion of time, which is not an, a, prop, a proper attitude. We believe in Seder. We don't believe in the Jewish notion of time. That's wrong. We believe that if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. If you're late, don't come. We believe in the, the proper notion of time. So the Rebbe the Almighty certainly knows exactly time. He knows time. 
He's got better than an atomic clock from Costco. He knows exactly the right time. So why not chatzos, bachatzos, at midnight? Makas Bachoros, this final plague is going to strike at midnight. Why? Approximately, a little before, a little bit after. He didn't say bachatzos, says Rashi. Shema yitu atztagninune paro v'yomru Moshe badayu. Because you know what will happen? Paro's advisors, Paro's astrologers, Paro's cabinet will say, this wasn't God. Moshe came before and he warned you what would happen, but he told you it would happen at midnight. And you know, according to our atomic clock, according to my Apple watch, says Paro's advisor, it was 11.59 and 58 seconds. It was 12.01. So this wasn't God. This wasn't. So Hashem refers to it as Bachatzos at midnight, but when Moshe communicates it in order to build some margin, some, some room for error, he says, at about midnight. And you're just blown away by this Rashi. You should be blown away by this Rashi. This didn't come out of nowhere. Moshe doesn't introduce himself at the 10th plague and say, I'm Moshe, nice to meet you, God's about to strike you at about midnight because I don't want you to think it wasn't him, it was just a coincidence. When did this plague come? After nine times that Moshe says, the rules of nature are going to be suspended and interfered with. Nine extraordinary things are going to happen to you and all of them you will suffer through. And now the 10th one, there's still room for cynicism and skepticism. The 10th one, Paro or his advisors might still say because it was 12 minutes and three seconds or 11.59 and 52 seconds, that's enough error for them to say it didn't come from above. What's going on over here? How's that possible? After the Maka of Kinim, even Paro's advisors pointed and said, this is enough. Too many coincidences. This isn't random. This coordinated, incredible interference of nature, that's above, that's God. And then he said, Even Paro after Barad said, you know, God's in charge, he's in control, I yield, I surrender to him, uh, I can't compete. So now after the 10th plague, after the Chartumim already conceded, after Paro already forfeited, now after the 10th plague is when we're worried that the cynicism is going to kick in Nah, it was a little off. It wasn't God. Is that what's going on? So, Rav Altuski, the Rashiv of Torah, says, Koach zehu mikochos ha-nefesh al-adam, shigam imroa teisha makos, umakir b'chush, shezeh me'ez Hashem, im yeshlo achiz be'ez ha-teretz dachok v'cholo shezeh lo ma'ez Hashem, zekvar metashtesh etzlo es ha-emes, lahe'achez b'chol teretz, u'bevad shelo lagiya l'matzav shamlechu yevez ve'amida mul tfiyas ha-emes. This is the human psyche. We so desperately don't want to admit the truth. We so desperately have an aversion to taking ownership or responsibility that if we can find 0.0000000001% chance that this is not something that would then bear responsibility on us, we'll go with it. Ah, the chances are so beyond unlikely. Doesn't matter. As long as we can find any possibility of any chance, the human psyche so manipulates our thinking that we will, in an effort to not have to take responsibility, come up with the most creative, imaginable way to not bear responsibility. So sometimes we don't want to see the hand of Hashem in our life. We want to be able to say, nah, that's just chance, it's just random, it wasn't Hashem. And even though it's so far-fetched and nearly impossible to reach that conclusion, where do you see that? You see that essentially with every atheist and agnostic. The evidence of Hashem's existence is so overwhelming that it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a believer. When you examine the evidence, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does a believer. You could read Rabbi Kellerman's permission to believe, permission to receive. You could read countless, you could read Dr. Schroeder's Genesis and the Big Bang. You could read many beautiful works that compiled the evidence of Hashem's existence. You could learn the Ramban and our Parsha we've spoken about before, that there's no such thing as nature, that it's all miracles. Like, like uh, what was his name? Michaels, the great announcer in the Olympics. Do you believe in miracles? That's what the Parsha and that's what this world and this life are screaming out to us. What was his name? Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? 
I didn't watch it. I wasn't old enough. I don't even know if I was alive. What year was it? And you're all looking at me with blank stares like you don't know what I'm talking about. It's the great American miracle. I was alive. But I wasn't watching it. But I wasn't watching it. You know, the miracle on ice when the Americans beat the Russians. Do you believe in miracles in those final seconds? Do you believe in miracles? Those iconic words, one of the greatest sports uh, calls of all time, which he was screaming at all of us. Like the Ramban, he didn't know it. He was channeling the Ramban. Do you believe in miracles? There's no nature. There's no great coaching, great team, because they only had the, you know, they, they didn't have a name on the back of their jersey. They only played for the logo on the front of their jersey. All the drushes that have been given about that iconic call and that moment in sports. But it's all the Ramban and our Parsha, the Ramban and Parsha's bow. If you know one Ramban on the entire Torah, that's the Ramban you have to know. Because the Ramban writes that a person has no Reach Torah, a person has no Chelek in Torah. The Ramban writes, you have no portion in Torah if you don't recognize that big and small, everything is a miracle from Hashem. There's no nature. When you drop this bottle and gravity makes it fall, and thank God the cap was on, that's not gravity, it's not physics, it's not nature. That's Hashem. Everything, every leaf that falls that changes colors, everything is Hashem, big and small. And that's why Hashem did all these miracles and pomp and circumstance in order to teach us and to show us that. A world where we see him pulling the strings behind the curtain. That's what's going on everywhere. That's what's happening. So when you examine the evidence, it's overwhelmingly conclusive. There is no absolute proof because there's no absolute proof of anything in this world. There's no absolute proof that you could drink this bottle of water, it's not been poisoned and tainted, you won't drop dead. There's no proof that when you got in your car, you would get here alive. And yet, we, every decision we make, we compile the evidence. And if it's persuasive, compelling, overwhelming, we go with it to be willing to get in the airplane, to be willing to get in the car, to be willing to drink the water, to be willing to take the medicine from the pharmacy. There's no proof of any decision we make in our lives. Every decision that we make, we make because we have weighed the evidence. And the evidence that Hashem exists is at least as compelling as the evidence you can get in a car on 95 in South Florida and that you'll get there alive. At least as compelling. So it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a believer. Aye, so why are there atheists and agnostics left? Because there's a huge consequence to becoming a believer. You have to radically change your life, your lifestyle, your choices, your focus, your faith, everything about you, if you believe. So the mind has a way, even though it's point oh 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 one percent chance that there is no God, that it's all random, that it's the result of a big bang. But I'll go with that. Because that allows me to make the choices that I want and not have to yield to a higher power. So that's what he says is going on. Why did he have to, why did he have to build in what the cynic might say? Because the cynic is inside each and every one of us. We too run that risk and that possibility. So what happened on that night? There was a tzaka gedola b'chalaretz mitzrayim, a great scream, asher kamolo, niyasa v'chamolo, sosif. There never was before, there never will be again. The kind of shriek, the kind of scream, the kind of reaction to what happened. Pasuk zayin, l'chol b'nei Yisrael, yecharatz kelev l'shono, l'meish v'ad behema. But against all the children of Israel, no dog shall wet its tongue against neither man nor beast. So that Hashem, so that you shall know that Hashem will have differentiated between Israel and between the Jewish people and between the Egyptians. A miracle that night. And what was the miracle that night? The dogs were quiet. They didn't bark. They didn't howl. The dogs were quiet. The dogs were quiet. Who kept the dogs in? The dogs were quiet. So what's the greatness of that miracle? So first of all, I got to share with you a Hasidah Shetairah. The Imre Pinchas, or Pinchas of Karetz. Listen to what he says. This is such a Hasidah Shetairah. He says, Why do we need to know that? No dog barked. Okay. Hashem made a miracle. No dog barked. Differentiate the Jewish people and the Egyptians. This is what the Repinchas of Karas answers. Lo yecheratz. Lo yecheratz doesn't only mean to bark. Adam lo yecheratz. Charetz means chalak l'shnaim, to be broken or divided into two. Rak kelev, kelev, ye l'shono. Lo echad bepeh, ve echad belev. A whole new way of reading the Pasuk. Not lo yecheratz kelev, lo yecheratz, kelev, yihiyeh. Don't be broken, 
we say one thing and you do another, kilev. Don't be echad bepev echad belev. Be consistent, follow through. That's what he says is going on. But that's not what the Pasuk means. So what does the Pasuk mean? And here, the Otsiplos HaTorah, we don't have time to examine all of it. If you are a dog lover, a pet lover, you have a dog, you know who you are, and you've told all of us. So you'll love this. He has pages and pages and pages of the Jewish relationship with dogs, with pets, and so on. He says, what's the big deal? I got it. Firstborn all died. I got it. All the water turned to blood. Frogs or crocodiles, alligators roamed all over Egypt. That's a big deal. The dogs were all quiet that night. Okay, that's such a big miracle. That was so important to Hashem. Sometimes dogs are quiet. Sometimes. So that's a revealed miracle of Hashem. He says, dogs had every reason that night, especially to bark. The fact that they didn't bark is not the anomaly. It's that they had every reason to bark, and yet they didn't. And then he goes through many, many reasons. We'll just share a few of them. There were corpses... There were dead bodies all over Egypt. Dogs like dead bodies. Dogs like dead things, dead animals, dead people. Number two, dogs bark when people go out at night. When a dog sees peace, so senses a person walking, roaming at night, they bark. When the Malach HaMavis, when the angel of death comes, the dog somehow perceives that. And that's another reason a dog barks. So three reasons the dog should have barked and didn't. That was the miracle. And he says, the Riva, he quotes the Riva next, gives several reasons. The people were there with their staff in their hands. Dog bark when they see people with, sta- with sticks. They didn't bark. The Cheskuni, dog bark after midnight. Because they're watchdogs. They've been trained to bark after midnight, yet they didn't bark. The Hodos Yitzchak gives another reason. He says you have to read it as a continuation of the Pasuk that came before. We just described this enormous scream, this huge reaction, unprecedented, unparalleled. You can imagine that if the people shrieked and screamed, the dogs would likely respond and react by barking. Yet they didn't. That was a miracle. They say for Agra Dekala, brings the Masora. Two times it says, L'chol b'nei Yisrael, L'chol b'nei Yisrael haya or b'moshvosam. Even when there was darkness, the Jewish people had light. L'chol b'nei Yisrael lo yechratz kelev l'shono. For the Jewish people, no dog barked. Shemakas choshech, hamakas b'choros, nilmadim zemizeh. So we have this sort of gzera shava. L'chol b'nei Yisrael. All the Jewish people were not affected by darkness, and all the Jewish people... Um, no dog barked. Why? It never got dark the night of Makas Bechoros. Not only did the Jewish firstborn not die, but also it never got dark that night. And we're learning that from the parallel of L'chol B'nei Yisrael. What do the dogs get as a reward? What's the reward for the dogs that the Jewish dogs didn't bark that night to differentiate from the Egyptians? Number one, you can't eat a nevela. We don't eat something that was killed other than through shechita. So roadkill, something that died of natural causes. What do we do with it? Pasuk specifically tells us, give it to the dog to eat. Throw it to the dogs to eat. We reward them. We give them the food, that which we can't eat. Our shirayim. Number two, dogs bark shira to Hashem every day. Number three, He gives many, many reasons what are the rewards of the, of the dogs. Of the dogs. Because of this, Ben Ishchai says, We continue to reward dogs today, and how do we do it on Pesach night? You can't hit a dog on Pesach. Specifically, So, I don't think you should hit a dog anytime. Peter, save your letters. But to someone who has to uh, 
train a dog. No training or striking a dog on Pesach because that's the holiday that we appreciate our dogs and we don't hit our dogs and we keep our dogs. And uh, while we talk about dogs, Rabbi Yudah Chassid writes, Adam And don't hit a dog that's sleeping. Only a awake, awoken dog. Okay. Moshe called the Mitzrim, the Tzor Hamor, says the Pella. Pasuk Zamar Moshe Rabbeinu Divri Paro, Al Tosev Ros Panai Panai Kibayom Rasach Panam Tamus. Vechara Af Moshe Al Divri Paro. Moshe gets very upset. Lachol Ben Yisrael Yicharatz Kelav Lashono Kara Kelav Lachol Amitzrim. So the Tzor Hamor says Moshe was calling all the Egyptians dogs. The Egyptians, he was calling them dogs that night. Okay. There's another Medrash in Tehillim says something wild. Shabbatzis Yisrael Mitzrayim Halachol Echad BeEchad Yisrael Kelav. Wow. To someone who thinks Jews don't have dogs. The Medrash Tehillim, Ms. Marchav Beis, says that when the Jews left Egypt, everyone had a dog. Everyone took a dog. Okay? Why would they need dogs? After Cain killed Hevel, and Kurdish told him he had to wander, he was vulnerable, he was fragile. There was going to be someone who would avenge Hevel's blood. Hashem gave him a dog to take him. That would be his protection. The dog would be his security. The dog would watch. So maybe according to this, the Jews who still had a fear of the Mitzrim, when they left, they each had a dog. They were protected. The dog was a watchdog. The dog was protected. Where'd they get dogs from? They got the dogs. They inherited the dogs from Yaakov. As the Medrash says in Bresha's Rabbah, Shahil Yaakov, Shishim Ribo, Kolovim, Shomre Hatzon. Yaakov had 60,000 dogs that watched over his enormous estate of flock. Vishomer Meyav Esrim Ribo, Kolovim. Ain't of Remedjas, Misparsham, Kipshutam. Did he really have dogs? Did he not have dogs? Anyway, he has pages and pages and pages. He dug up every Medrash and everything there is to say about a dog. Many dogs. Why do non Jews call Jews dogs? Hatam Shakoram Umos Haolom, the Yehudim Bashem, Kolovim. Banim is begematria kalavim. Because Banim, Kashbarch who says, Banim atem Hashem lokeichem. We are Hashem's children. But Banim, children, is the same gematria as kalavim dogs. So then we see ourselves as Banim. But the non Jews see, see us as kalavim. Right here in Palm Beach County. Do you know how many country clubs had a sign that said, No Jews, no blacks, and no dogs? Jews and Jews are, are considered, were considered, once again are being considered dogs. The Gamkas of Ki Li B'nai Yisrael, Rashi Tevos, Kalavi, Ki Li B'nai Yisrael, Chaf Lamed Bez Yud, my dog. Jew, Non-Jews refer to Jews as dog. I don't want to go on and on on this. We have much more inspiring divrei to share, but fascinating discussion. You gotta love the Utzer Plosa Torah. Pages and pages and pages on the Jewish view, the Jewish history, the Jewish connection. But who knew? Every Jew left Egypt with a dog. Yaakov Avinu bequeathed to his children all these dogs. We reward the dog. Don't hit the dog. The Ben Ishchayu says, don't hit a dog on Pesach night. Why would you be hitting a dog if you didn't have a dog? So Ben Ishchayu obviously is assuming that people had dogs. Anyway, fascinating. Perak Yud Aleph, Pasuk, Ches. Turn the page. And all, tell all your servants to come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Moshe took leave of Paro after he warned him about Makas Bechoros. He takes leave of Paro Bechari Af with great anger. What is he angry or frustrated about? Why Bechari Af? What's Moshe upset about? What did he think Paro was going to do? Give him a grace Yashikayach? What did he think? A dunk? What did he say? Thank you? What did he think he was going to say to Moshe? So of course he's frustrated with the way Paro interacted with him, but what did he expect? Rav Zedel Epstein, the Mashkiach of Torah Or, gives a Meiradika answer. He says the following. He says, we learned before, we studied last week, that Moshe had an amazing sense of Hakara Satov. He wouldn't strike the water, he wouldn't strike the sand because they were both good to him. Gratitude. It's not for the recipient. Gratitude is how we condition ourselves to be willing, to be humble enough to say, I needed you, I depended on you, modeli, modeal. 
Moshe is the paradigm of gratitude. Moshe's whole life is characterized by gratitude. Ad kedekach, that even here, even here, his hakaras atov goes so far that he's grateful to Paro. As horrific and heinous as Paro was, he also grew up in Paro's palace. Paro gave him room and board. Paro took care of him. Paro, he grew up in Paro's palace. Certainly he knew Paro's wickedness and evil. But he also felt a gratitude. That is where, while his brothers and sisters were suffering outside, he was spared, he was saved, he grew up in the lap of luxury and prosperity. Every maka, it's a beautiful depiction Rav Zedel offers. With every maka, Paro, Moshe comes back to Paro and he hopes beyond all hope that maybe this callous, cruel person, his heart will soften. That maybe, just maybe, he will accept Hashem, feel regret and remorse, take responsibility, show Moshe some affection like he did when Moshe was a baby being raised in the palace. But what happened? But Paro only became more strident. Paro became more stubborn. Paro became more callous and more cruel. And Moshe was devastated. He yelled out beyond all hope, but it didn't become a reality. And that's the source of Chari Af. He was disappointed. He walked away disappointed after all that hope. But he maintained Akara Satov because the reality was that as much as Paro had done wrong, he also did right. We collectively practiced that too. We spoke about it Shabbos HaGadol, I think two years ago. The Pasuk says, Losis Saiv Mitzri. You're not allowed to aggravate, aggrieve an Egyptian. How does that express itself? Losis Saiv Mitzri in Halacha. You can't essentially bear a grudge against the Egyptians. Can't bear a grudge? They did a genocide against our people. They turned our little boys into bricks, cast them in the Nile, killed, oppressed, murdered, enslaved for hundreds of years, and we can't bear a grudge? The Torah says yes, because before they did that, the Jews had a golden age in Egypt. Before that happened, when the economy of the world collapsed and the Jews were hungry, where did Yaakov and his sons go? They came to Egypt. Don't ever forget the good that was done, even if it was layered over by evil and wickedness, Hashem says, I'll hold them accountable. I'll hold them responsible. You can't marry. We don't marry an Egyptian for several generations. But lo sa'ev mitzri. You also have to remember the good. So what is that relationship that we have? We spoke about it on Shabbos HaGadol after the war with Ukraine broke out. Because we spoke about what is the Jewish attitude to the countries that have hosted us both in good times and bad. What is our approach to those countries? You know, there is a supposed that a Jew cannot live in Spain. It is said that the Abarbanel, when he was exiled, instituted a cherem, that a Jew can't live in Spain. And there's a lot of tshuvas, there's a lot of halachic literature. Can Jews go back and live in Spain? Torah tells us you're not allowed to go back and live in Egypt. That's the balance, tension. On the one hand, Torah in three places tells us a Jew is not allowed to go live in Egypt. Halachically, we don't go back to Egypt. We don't go back to Egypt psychologically, we don't go back to Egypt spiritually, metaphysically, and we don't go back to Egypt geographically, physically. A Jew is not meant to live in Egypt. On the other hand, don't bear a grudge, don't aggrieve the Egyptian. So which is it? You know, the Ukrainians, Jews have been living in Ukraine, but there are many Jews who lived in Ukraine who will tell you, our recent speaker at the JNF weekend, Refusnik will tell you that every Ukrainian grew up in their mother's milk with hating a Jew that the Ukrainians were greater accomplices to the Nazis than anyone else. They were glad to play that role. What's our relationship? What's our relationship to Germany and to Germans and to German products and to German reparations, the great debate between Begin and Begurian? So it all stems from the Torah. None of these feelings or reactions or conversations, when a war breaks out with Ukraine, should we feel empathy, sympathy, send aid not only to the Jews but to Ukrainians? Do we remember what they did and we bear a grudge and we don't ever help? or I don't ever feel in our heart, we don't just pontificate and we don't rely on the pundits, but we have a Torah HaKadoshah to turn to that has this attitude. So Rabbi Zedel says, Moshe Rabbeinu interacts with Paro Chari Af because he still had a Karas HaTov. 
he simultaneously lived with that tension. On the one hand, this Paro is the cruel despot and dictator who is torturing our people. On the other hand, it's his palace I grew up in. It's his palace I lived in. We took our trip to Poland several summers ago. First day, the first place we went in Warsaw was the Jewish Museum in Warsaw. And there you can trace and track hundreds of years of Jewish Renaissance in Poland before the war. If you didn't know the way the story ended, you'd say, wow, what an amazing country. What a great and illustrious history we have here. Our history is complicated. And how do we react to that complication? What should we feel? It's all from the Torah. And there is a great example of a Perikid Beis, Pasuk Beis. Vayom Rasham Moshe, now we interrupt our story to bring the first mitzvah in the Torah. Our story becomes interrupted for the first official mitzvah of the Torah. Vayom Rasham Moshe, V'yalarim Be'aretz B'Tzayim Le'mor, HaChodesh HaZelachem, Rosh Chodashim, Rishonu L'Chodshe Hashanah. This is your month, Nisan, the first month for you for the months of the year. Many tshuvas bring down. Is a Jew allowed to write one, what's today, 25th, 26th, whatever day it is, 24th. Is a Jew allowed to write one, 24, 23, the date? There are tshuvas that bring down. Absolutely not. The Munkach Rebbe, the Minchas Eluza, was very opposed to it. On matzevas, certainly, but even on documents. How could you call January the first month? Nisan is the first month. So you write out the word January, don't write the number one, because that's not the first month of the year. Others say, yeah, you don't mean it's the first month in any religious sense. You're simply using the numbers the way society does, in documents and in contracts and the like. So there's a lot of halachic literature on this question. Can we count according to the months and according to the years? I gave a shir on this recently at the yeshiva on New Year's because that was the question. What is New Year's? The Ramah quotes the Truma Sadeshan. It was censored out of the, out of the Truma Sadeshan. It was censored out of the Truma Sadeshan. It was censored out of the Ramah. But the Ramah in Hilchus Avodis Kachal, when it's talking about idolatry, refers to Nittal. Nittal is the 25th of December. It is the birthday of that, that Jew, Yeshu, Hanotri. And eight days later, it was his bris, was the 1st of January. So if you mark those days and use that calendar, and 2023 is since what year? So if you're using those dates, are you implicitly acknowledging and are you implicitly practicing idolatrous? Now the truth is the dates don't work out. Those dates don't even work out, so you'd probably not, even if it were something prohibited, but it's inaccurate to begin with those dates. They don't even work out the way they do. So it's fascinating halachic literature. Can you use the number one? Can you use the year? Are you allowed to or not allowed to? Outside of Israel, we don't really have the choice. But it all comes from this Pasuk, because Nisan is Rosh Chodesh, Rishon Hashanah. It's the first month of the year, Nisan. So the first mitzvah the Torah gives us, really the Torah should have started from here. Everything that came earlier is to teach us who are we, why are we here, what are we meant to be, how are we meant to live, and then we can get to the mitzvahs. But this is the first mitzvah of Why is it the first mitzvah? We control, we manipulate the calendar. It's not imposed on us. Count six days every seventh day of Shabbos. Like it or not, here it comes. But when it comes to Rosh Chodesh, when it comes to the calendar, we control it. Today, because of Hillel Azakim, we have a fixed calendar. But... In the times of the Talmud, we controlled the calendar. Witnesses came and testified. They saw a new moon. We controlled the calendar. But we didn't just passively control the calendar based on receiving testimony. We were afila, atem afila shogim, atem afila mezidim. We were allowed to manipulate the calendar. Ooh, if this is Rosh Chodesh, Pesach is going to fall out in inconvenient days. Mm, get out of here, witnesses. We're not hearing you. Let's get the next witnesses. We'll say it's the next day. We were allowed to manipulate and control the calendar even to our advantage. Why did Hashem give us that power? And why is this the first mitzvah that's given in the Torah? The Sforna writes, you know why it's the first mitzvah in the Torah? Because the Jewish people are about to be set free. They're about to be redeemed and celebrate freedom. And do you know what is the sign of freedom? Whether you control your time. A slave has no control over time. They serve their master. Whatever the master tells them where they need to be, when they need to be, how they need to be, they have to surrender to their master. A free person controls time. So if we have no management of our own time, come back to Jewish time. If you're always late, you're a slave. If you're free, you control time. You manage time. Time serves you. 
you don't feel enslaved to it. That's why it's the first mitzvah offered here in the Torah. But Chaim Valozhenar has a different reason. You know why it's the first mitzvah in the Torah? For another reason. Achodesh Zelachem. Chaim Valozhenar, Nefesh Chaim Shar Alf Perak Beis. He says, Anshe Knesset Sagadola. Put into our davening in Birchus Krishma. Hamachadish Betuva Bechoyom Tamid Masa Bereshis. Kushborachu renews Hamachadish Betuvo. In Hashem's goodness and out of His kindness, He renews creation every day. Not just every day, tamid, every moment, every second, every millisecond. It means how long does the world's contract last before it needs to be renewed? A fraction of a millisecond. The world's contract, our contract, our existence is constantly in a state of renewal. Tamid, over and over and over again. Why? Hashem has nothing else or better to do. We don't earn or deserve a longer contract. So Chaim Velazhner says there's something so powerful. You know why? A Jew is never stuck. We're never fixed. We're never finished. We're never done. If Hashem is renewing the world every moment, we are renewing ourselves every moment. Just because that's who I was a moment ago doesn't mean that's who I have to be right now. Every second, every millisecond, every moment, we can redefine our lives. We can start again over and over and over again. The first mitzvah we were given, when we were set free, that is the most empowering mitzvah there is, is not just hachodesh hazelachem, the month is yours, of Gedal Yeshua and Or Gedal Yahu writes this. Don't read it hachodesh hazelachem, read it. Not hachodesh, hachadash, chadash, newness, freshness, renewal, new beginning, new opportunity, fresh start. That is a gift given to us. We don't ever have to feel we're fixed. We're never done. We don't have to ever be fatalistic. This is not who we are or how we have to live. Like Hashem, emulating Hashem, we too can be mechadesh b'chol yom tamid. We can renew and redefine and recreate ourselves every day. No matter what age, no matter what stage of life, we look out and we say, I'm not satisfied with what kind of mother or father I've been, husband or wife, Evid Hashem, community member. You're not done, you're not fixed. Chiddush, hachodesh hazelachem, that power, that capacity for renewal, for starting again, Hashem gave it to us. He gave it to us. It's pregnant with possibility. It's filled with opportunity. The new moon, yesterday was Rosh Chodesh. If you went out last night, what do you see in the sky? Next to nothing. You'd think that the holiday that celebrates the moon, you'd see a full, beautiful, magnificent, bright moon, but you see nothing. When do you see the full moon? Halfway through, only on the 15th. That's when you see the full, that's when you see the full moon. Rabbi Josh Weinberger gave a shir the other night and he quoted his Alta Zayda, the Bnei Yisoscher. The Helega Bnei Yisoscher says, we have a machlokas, Beisilu Beishamai. There's a little bonus to our Torah for you, not directly connected to the Parsha. But we're now in the month of Shvat. Shenishma Besoros Tovos. We should hear good news and good tidings. So you have a machlokas, Beishamai Beisilu. We know this is the month of blossom, of, of the Rosh Hashanah for the trees. When is it? The first of Shvat or the 15th of Shvat? What are they arguing about? Not time-wise, not the Metzias. They're not arguing about when does the first root take place underground. What they're arguing about, Beis Hillel say, you know when there's blossoming, when there's growth, when there's possibility, when you can see what there is yet ahead, when you go earn and you go get, that's Beis Shammai. Beis Hillel say the 15th of the month when there's a full moon, when it's bright, when it's full, when we've inherited that fullness, when we can build upon it, when we can build upon it. That's the machlokas, and there's truth to both. The idea is, even in the darkness of the cold and frigid winter, somewhere, <laughs> even when it feels like everything around us is dead because of the dark, cold, frigid winter, even when the iguanas are frozen and not moving, under the ground, there's the beginning of movement. And we should know inside ourselves that even when it feels like I'm stuck, my life is cold and frigid and dark and gloomy, inside there's some movement, there's some change, there's some growth, there's possibility. It's a Rosh Hashanah Ilanos. There's a Tu B'Shvat coming. There's HaChodesh HaZelachem, HaChadash HaZelachem. Perikid Beis, Pasa Gimel. Dabru El Kol Adas Ben Yisrael Emor Ba'asul HaChodesh HaZev Yilchem Eish Se'el Aves Avos Se'el Labayis. Oh, Dabru. 
Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. We got a great Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. Says Rashi, Vechi Aaron, who's speaking here? Who's speaking? Who's about to say what's said next? Hashem speaks to Moshe and Aaron, and then Moshe is the one who says it. So Rashi says, Vechi Aaron medaber, v'alok var nemer ata dedaber. Hashem is speaking to Moshe, and he says in the singular, ata, you speak. So why dabru? Why in the plural? Ela chulkin kavad zelazeh v'omrem zelazeh, lamdeni v'adibar yotzim v'shneim kilashneim medabrim. Moshe and Aaron are communicating together, and they're showing deference and honor and respect to one another to communicate and transmit this in collaboration together. But the Matthias is that Moshe is the only one who spoke. Moshe is the one who transmitted Hashem's word. So nothing came from Aaron. So what, what are we gaining here? So Rechaim Shemulevitz brought from the Mashkiach Rav Yeruchim. Torah is teaching us when brothers love each other and they don't compete with one another. And this is a big principle that we see throughout. Don't worry, Aaron's not going to be jealous. Moshe, Moshe is proud of Aaron. Aaron's proud of Moshe. They take pride and joy and satisfaction in each other's success. They celebrate each other's success. They experience each other's success as an extension of their own. They're not competing such a problem of sibling rivalry, of that inability to fargin, to be happy, to celebrate someone else's success. Moshe and Aaron celebrate one another's success. It's true that the first thing communicated was just for Moshe. Hashem alone spoke to Moshe. He was the first one to speak. But as soon as Moshe finished and Aaron had the ability to explain, to elaborate, to extrapolate, Moshe said, please, Aaron, you do a better job. Take over. And when Aaron was done explaining and there was the next point to teach, he said, no, Moshe, pick it up from here. Sometimes you see people and they're competing for who could speak the most. They're shouting over one another. Nobody's actually talking. They're all just waiting, taking turns till it's their turn to speak louder than the next person. Moshe and Aaron were not so. So the Pasuk attributes Dabru they spoke together, even though they didn't, it was in sequence because of the respect they had in an ability to really communicate one at a time, to really speak one to the other. So the Pasuk says, And this is what I really wanted to get to, so now we're ready to start. On the 10th of this month, they should take for themselves each man a lamb or a kid for each father's house, a lamb or a kid for their household. So, what's going on over here? Go take. Next pasuk. If the household will not will be too small for a lamb or a kid, so you don't have enough to eat all that shawarma in your house. So get the whole block together, combine a few houses together, collaborate. And everyone according to what he eats shall be counted for a lamb or for a kid. Collaborate, connect. Combine, and you will be able to experience the Korban Pesach together. This is the instruction of the Korban Pesach, of the Korban Pesach. The Korban Pesach is the featured way that we celebrate Pesach. Now today, we don't bring a Korban Pesach. We have the Zroa at the Seder table to commemorate the Korban Pesach, but we don't eat a Davka to show that we're not consuming. We don't have a Beis HaMikdash. It should be built speedily in our days, Mamish. But we don't have a Korban Pesach today. However, it is represented. But the Chazal instituted several practices to ensure that we keep it alive. Before you even go to the Seder table, there's a minag to recite the Korban Pesach. The Shlach Kodesh fulfilled, Neshama Parmas Vaseinu. We can't bring it, but when we read about it, it's as if we brought it. And we have Shnei Tavshilin. We have a roasted bone and a roasted egg, represent the way it was brought in the Beis HaMikdash. Korech, the way Hillel ate it as a sandwich, was to commemorate. Zecher Lamikdash, the Korban Pesach. Afikomen, Zecher Lamikdash. We have regular references throughout the Seder for the Beis HaMikdash. So even though we don't have it today, we do have it. It is present, it is represented, it is at the Seder table. This Korban Pesach, which is the whole way we celebrate Pesach, which is this Pasuk, is a very unusual Korban. It's a very unusual Korban. In Ezu Makoman, if you're on time, you read it every day. If you're on time and you can keep up, you read Ezu Mekoman every day. In Ezu Mekoman it says, It lists Pesach separately. 
it lists Pesach independently as a Korban. And the Rambam introduces Hilchus Korban Pesach by telling us there are 15 unique aspects to the halachas of a Korban Pesach different than all other Korbanos. This is a unique, this is a distinct, this is a different Korban than all others. Where is it eaten? Kachay Kachim can't be removed from the courtyard of the Beis HaMikdash. Kachay Kalim are disqualified if taken out of Yerushalayim. Korban Pesach, where are the boundaries of the Korban Pesach? In the Pasha here, Korban Pesach, the boundaries are the walls of the house. What does the Pasuk say? Perikid Beis, Pasuk Chav Aleph. Turn the page now, continuing still with the Korban Pesach. Page 354 in the <laughs> You can't take it outside the walls of the house until the morning. Until the morning. Rav Druk and his Eish Tamid on that Pasuk says, why could they not leave the house until the morning? Simple understanding why they shouldn't go out is dangerous. The angel of death, and it wasn't an angel, Ani Malach, Hashem himself traveled throughout Egypt that night, Makas Bachoros, in order to strike and wipe out the Egyptians. But it's dangerous. Because once permission is given, it's dangerous. Get out of the way. Stay home that night. If they go out, it can be dangerous. However, we find in the Mishnah, Tosefta says, so you sowed Yitzia, so one of the differences between the Pesach and Mitzrayim and the Korban Pesach in perpetuity was this notion you had to stay home. Now you had to stay home not only because of concern, because of danger, you had to stay home because there was something special about the Korban Pesach and being at home in Mitzrayim. And what was it? There's something very special about the home. You find, in fact, this phrase used so many times, so many times. Bias. You know how many times it's used in this parsha? The word bias is used 14 times in Parsha's bow, in this Parsha. The word bias, the word home, house, is used no less than 14 times. You know why? Everything revolves around the bias. Everything revolves around the bias. Where is the blood sprinkled? On the doorway. Where is the meat eaten? In the house. Who do you eat it with? Preferably members of your household. You can't leave your house that entire night. With many reasons which are given why you can't leave your house that night. The Chizkuni writes on Pasuk uh, on Perik Beis, Chizkuni writes, You have to eat it in one house. You can't take the meat out of that house. Chizkuni writes, he writes, according to the plain meaning, it means that the Pesach, Korban Pesach, must be consumed in the house of the owner. No parts of it may be sent to friends. You can't say, oh, my neighbor loves this piece of meat. I'll send it to them. When one consumes something in a hurry, you don't have time to attend to such niceties. Since the whole way we left was Bechipazon, you don't start sharing the leftovers. My neighbor loves the way I make the pastrami. He loves my corned beef, loves my flanken, loves my, let me give some of it to the, they love the tongue. Ugh. They love the tongue. But like uh, Tashlichanasa, they love the tongue. Don't don't eat anything. Don't taste anything that tastes you back. So uh, so you bring it to the neighbor. So Chizkuni says that's something that free people with all the time in the world do. But if you're leaving Bechipaz and you don't have time to do, that's the Chizkuni. But the Abar Benel is a different take. I wish I had more time now. Abar Benel says Ha'am Tamid Nimshah B'Masav B'Dargidon. Hisirim Ocha Ame Yosem. The Chizkun, the Yabar gives a different reason. He says safety. It's not safe to go out. But the Meshachachma says, you know why you don't leave the house? Because being part of family, being part of community, being part of a Chabura is part of the answer to idolatry. The paganism, the idolatry, the attitude that is pervasive and permeating all around you in Egypt, the Choshech, that selfishness, that self-centeredness, that egocentric life, our answer is to eat Bechabura, to eat as a family. 
we believe in the unit of the family. The idea, our first Beis HaMikdash, the first Beis HaMikdash is not the Beis HaMikdash. The first Beis HaMikdash was not the Mishkan. The very first Beis HaMikdash the Jewish people had was our home, our home. All the sprinkling of the blood, where you could eat it, you take, take it out. All of these halachas of the Korban Pesach from our Parsha about the home parallel exactly the halachas of the Korbanas in the Beis HaMikdash proper. And this exactly is what this story is all about. Moshe talks to Paro and he says, give us three days. And Paro says, Miva, Miho, Chim, who's going? He says, who's going? Miva, Miho, who's going? We're all going. This is a party. We're all going. The elderly, the young men and women, it's going to be geschmack. It's going to be gewaldic. It's going to be unbelievable. What was Paro asking? Miva, Miho, Chim. Moshe, you supposedly want to go in order to offer sacrifices in the desert. So who are the priests? Give me the list of the clergy and I'll get them a pass. You can go for three days. Moshe says, that's not how we operate. That's not how we go. Our religion is not delegated to the priests and the clergy and everyone else is absolved. In our religion, you know, sometimes people say to me, Rabbi, I understand why you have to do that. You're the rabbi. You have to be stricter. You have to keep that halacha or you have to display that level of Yerushalayim or that's on you. In our religion, there's no halacha that applies to the rabbi that doesn't apply to every single other person. Nobody has greater responsibility. Maybe we live more under a microscope. Maybe people expect more or demand more. But in the Shulchan Aruch, there's no section for, here's the Shulchan Aruch for Balabatim, here's the Shulchan Aruch for Rabbanim. There's no separate Shulchan Aruch. Mi vami ochim presupposed that clergy and, and, and pastors and priests, they're the ones going because those are the ones who lead religion. Not in our religion. In our religion, we are all equal. It's incumbent and obligated on all of us. We all bear the same level of responsibility and accountability. Why? Because if religion is a burden and a pressure, if religion is a responsibility only, so it's delegated to the priest, the pastor, to the clergy. But Chag Hashem Lanu. Moshe Rabbeinu says, it's a party. It's a Chag. It's Geshmak. We're not depriving the kids and the men and the women and the young and the old. It's for everybody. We're all going. We're all going. Because where is our religion practiced? Our religion is practiced in the bias 14 times in our parsha. The bias is the first Beis HaMikdash. That's why the blood that's usually sprinkled in the Beis HaMikdash is sprinkled in the doorway of the home. The walls of the home took on the status of the walls of a Beit HaMikdash. That night, they were the boundary and the border of that Kachim column. The conclusion of Shmos, the glory of Hashem, rests in the Beis Yisrael. Where is the Jewish people's um, um, the central place of religious experience is in the Jewish home. Is in the Jewish home, and that's a beautiful, I'll tell you an incredible insight. We say Vaviosam al Har Kachiv Samachtu Veistiosi Olusayim Vizivchem Loratzon Amizbechi Ki Veisi Veistfila Yikare Lachol Amim Ki Beisi Hashem says My house is a Veistfila Lachol Amim. So I'll tell you a beautiful, a gishmak of word on those words, a beautiful word from Rav Aaron Levin. He says, he was the, the Rav of, of Raisha. He says, He says, you know, a non-Jew, the church, the, the, the mosque, that's the place of religious activity. And the home is the place of purely secular activity. When you walk into a Jewish home, it looks like it's a shul. There's Sfarim, there's Sidurim, there's a Stender, there's mezuzahs, there's religious articles and religious art and religious items that adorn every wall of a Jewish home. The moment you walk into that Jewish home, you see the practice that is permeating that home. So that's the pshat he says in the Pasuk. Ki beisi, beis tefila yikari l'chol ha'amim. Habaisa Yehudi nir lehem ki beis tefila. That a Jewish home looks like, for them, uh, a, a synagogue or a temple. That's the level of activity taking home. A Jewish home should look like. So the Jewish home is the first place of, of Jewish activity. Gemara says that Yaakov described the Beis HaMikdash differently than his father and his grandfather. Avram called it a har. Avram called it a mountain. And Yitzchak called it a sada. But Yaakov called it a bias. Beis Elokim. Beis Elokim. And who was the most accurate, the most correct, the Gemara says? Yaakov. Why is calling it a house more correct than calling it 
a field or a mountain. There's a lot to say about it. But Rav Hirsch says, when we turn our bias into a base Elohim, when our house is a place of virtue and nobility and honesty and integrity and chesed and Torah learning, of generosity, then we've created from our house the greatest Shar HaShemayim. The biggest gate to heaven is from our house. Yaakov calls it a bias. So the shul is important. It's not the holiest place in the community. The holiest place in the whole community is not the shul. It's not even the mikvah. The holiest place in the Jewish community is the Jewish home. Is the Jewish home. Beis Elohim. From a Jewish home, we create Ashar Hashamayim. So from our inception, from our birth, from when the Jewish people began, how did it begin? Selavesavos, Selabayis. It's all about the home. It's all about the connection. It's all about being together. That's what it's all about. And you see this demonstrated, we're out of time, in the Korban Pesach, that has to be eaten b'chabura, the notion of the home, and then the next concentric circle, the, the primary circle, the center circle is the nuclear circle, the home, the family. What's the next circle? It's eaten b'chabura. You have to have community. The next concentric circle, the tzibur. Korban Pesach is a funny korban. It's not really korban yachid or a korban tzibur. It's somewhere in between. It's unique. It's distinct. And all of this is embedding within it these values of freedom that we share. We don't have a freedom so that we can go live on our own and satisfy our own hedonistic pleasure and pursue our own happiness. Freedom is translated into connection to community, to family, chabura, friendship, tzibur, community, am, and being a nation. Those concentric circles are really what our freedom are all meant to produce. They're really what they are all about. There's a lot more to say about this. No shir next week, but we still, uh, tomorrow morning, 10 minutes, Basil Sasharim, living with Amuna. Tomorrow night, we're going behind the bima with Yehuda Kohn, who is the great tzaddik, the father of the thousands who have lived in Beit El Izraki. He's an amazing individual. Tomorrow night, behind the bima, listen to the newest podcast, Out of the Shadows, that just came out last night on trauma. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy.